Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Finally, my guest this week, ESPN's Jay Billis. We talk about the change in legislation in college basketball, how that relates to the NBA, and how it really relates to the future of the elite basketball prospect in this country and how that's going to impact the NBA over time. Great conversation, visit, insight from the very best. Here's my chat with Jay Billis. Welcome into Jay Billis. Finally get Jay here on the pod. Jay, how are you? I'm doing great, Woj. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. The first thing I've got to ask you about, it was either your Instagram or Twitter, maybe both, uh, Sean McDonough's golf tournament up in Boston, I think, the other day. Bill Raftery and Charles Barkley at the same charity event, same golf tournament. There had to be a few stories come out of that. There were plenty of stories. We had uh, <laughs> uh, not only Raftery and uh, and McDonough and Barkley, but P.J. Carlissimo, Mike Breen, Jim Beheim, uh, Gino Ariema. We all went out to dinner after the pairings party at, in the North End at some uh, Italian restaurant. And uh, I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long time. <laughs> Those guys have uh, story after story, and whether you've heard them before or not, they're still they're still funny. And I still think, and you know this far better than I do, but I think the most amazing thing in sports is not uh, you know Tiger Woods or Jack Nicklaus winning 18 and 14 majors or anything like that, or uh, you know somebody hitting 70 home runs. It's P.J. Carlissimo being on the air as often as he is without cursing. <laughs> that, that's that's the the, the major yeah. accompl- the best accomplishment I've ever seen in sports. No, you're a- <laughs> you're absolutely right. Can you go anywhere? Without strangers coming up and having some random story about Bill Rafter, you would never imagined. Not only do like more people have bumped into him or known, never mind people who were in the basketball sphere. Just how many average people have a story about Raf? Yeah, everybody's got a Raf story, and if you've been with him uh, as you have, uh, you feel like you're uh, his best friend, and you've known him for for 50 years. Uh, and he treats everybody uh, unbelievably well. And another thing, as you know better than I do, one of the amazing things, I, w- I flew into the, the Boston airport, and I'm waiting for my golf bag to come off, and Charles Barkley got hit off his commercial flight, and he's standing there waiting for his bag. And there must have been, no joke, 25 people that came up to get their picture taken with him. And he was so nice you couldn't believe it. I mean, he he, he got to know people's names and uh, he was he was good to everybody. It was really really incredible. And uh, now you know I know he's thrown somebody out a window at one point in his career, but uh, but clearly that guy that he threw out the window was not very nice because uh, everybody that's nice to him uh, he treats like a million bucks. It was really really neat. Jay, we were at the um, NBA Finals in Cleveland, and I saw shockingly I saw Charles in a hotel bar after um, <laughs> after uh, one of the games. And he mentioned that the next day it was him and I think Jalen Rose and a few people were in there. And he mentioned that he was flying out early that next morning and had, I think, like connect through Minnesota and he was going to Iowa. And I said, what are you doing in Iowa? And as it turns out, he had met a man, I think just met him randomly somewhere, an older gentleman a few years ago and kept in touch with him through text. And the man ended up getting sick and ill. And and I think a family member let Charles know kind of near the end of his life that he had gotten to know that getting to know Charles had been really special for this man. And, um, and Charles was planning to fly to Iowa and show up at the memorial service at the funeral the night before he was going to and he did. And in fact, I looked on Twitter the next day and there were people posting from this funeral outside of like Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 
because Charles Barkley just walked into it and uh, just remarkable. Yeah, exceedingly nice person. And, uh, and you know, sometimes when you think, you know, it must be really difficult for a guy like Charles to walk through the airport. I, I remember this must have been 20 years ago. We were somewhere, and, and he was talking about celebrities that – that don't go out very much and then are surprised by the fact that, that they get hounded when they go out. And Charles's theory at that time was if you go out a lot, uh, you know, people are very nice. They're not going to, it's not going to be like a Michael Jackson sighting if you actually go out and, and you're in the public once in a while. If you, if you, you know, live the life of a celebrity recluse and you only go out on rare occasions, people are going to try to take advantage of it. But everybody that came up, he was like, yeah, let's get a picture and, uh, couldn't have been nicer. And, and uh, on, on several of the pictures, they, they, people came up. We were standing next to one another. They came up and, and said, can I get a picture? And then they handed the camera to me. <laughs> and so what I did was I took a picture of, of them and Charles and then turned the camera around and make sure I took a selfie of me <laughs> so they had that in there. <laughs> Perfect. Charles has, and we'll get into this here, but Charles has one of my favorite college lines ever. Uh, I think they were hounding him at Auburn for unpaid parking tickets and and. As the story goes, I think Charles said, hey, I didn't pay for the car. I'm not paying for the tickets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, he must be laughing at all this stuff with the NCAA now. When, when, when he and I were in college, uh, especially in the SEC and, and, and in large measure in the ACC, the stories about guys getting paid were, were, uh, were legendary. So uh, this, this stuff about some guy taking an extra – extra five bucks or getting a meal paid for uh, it. It seems like child's play compared to what was going on back in the day. Yeah. And that's the funny thing. People say it's worse than ever. And I'm, I'm not sure. I just think now, I think the money comes from different places yes. than it used to. I think the money comes, I think the coaches for the most part know how to get some plausible deniability. Hey, I'm going to make sure you get paid, but it's not me doing it. And whether it's through an agent, through the financial planners, which is another one, there's lots of ways now you know, the old days of the guy walking in with the briefcase of money. And this, I mean, that's how it literally happened. I don't think it's really done like that anymore. It's not as prevalent in that regard now. Um, uh, you know, I always make a joke, uh, but but it's true uh, that, that uh, you know, I kind of harken back and, and miss the good old days of cheating when the player actually got the money. Now it's just everybody around the player that brokers the player that's getting the money. Well, and that's exactly right. And I think I'd feel better about it if the player at least got it. And, it, and you're exactly right. It's, so many times, I don't think the player even knows he's being bought and paid for. I think he's being influenced and pushed in some cases toward a direction by people around him or others getting the money. But I don't know that they see, in many cases, guys see much of it. And if anyone's going to get it, at least allow them to. But That's exactly right. right but that gets us to um, the NCAA's uh, proclamation yesterday with great enthusiasm that they had made dramatic and earth-shaking change in college basketball and, and i think you said it exactly right jay uh, in in some of the sports center hits you did and uh some of the interviews you did on it initially after you know there were a few common sense moves that should have been done years ago that didn't need an fbi investigation to do that were merely a step in the right direction and when you really look at it you see some very moderate moves that probably help a very small number of players but the idea that this is dramatic is silly because dramatic would be allowing, which I think you've talked about for a very long time, at least allowing players to profit on their likeness. If a car dealership wants them to come sign for two hours or if you know a local hardware store wants them to do an ad for them, whatever it is, 
And then that way, if the schools say, well, we can't afford it and it'll violate Title IX, um, then we're going to have to pay everybody. Whatever their excuses are, you could just let the outside pay for it at the very least. And of course, this doesn't even come close to that. It's In fact, it's very much, this is a status quo. There's no change here. This is status quo. And in fact, I, I think they really, I think Dan Wetzel said it, they've doubled down on their amateur model. Yeah, they did, and, and in one regard, I'm not surprised by that. I think that's fine. I, I get it that, that they're gonna, they are gonna double down on amateurism. But even within the, the framework that the NCAA is doubling down on, there are so many areas that they could make positive change. And just even, even if they're gonna allow players to consult with and have agents, um, I, I just thought it was this Rube Goldberg system that, that they're trying to implement right now that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That, so if you're a, if you're deemed by USA Basketball to be a top prospect, you can have an agent. But if you're not a top prospect, you can't. If you get an agent in high school as a top prospect, then if you go to college, you have to terminate your relationship with that agent, which seems pretty hard to police and not particularly helpful. I don't see what the problem is of having a, a, a an agent when you're in college because you're not you're not making any money. So what's the agent going to take a cut of? Um, you know, if you're taking money from the agent, that violates the uh, that violates agent rules and, and certainly violates NCAA rules. They can deal with that if they had to, just as they could if you didn't have an uh, arrangement with an agent. But yeah, I know Scott Van Pelt was using the example of Kevin Herter, who won the first round of this year's draft. I used the example of John Collins a couple years ago at uh, at Wake Forest. Neither one of those players were top 100 players, so they wouldn't be allowed to consult an agent. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And why you're drawing arbitrary lines and asking uh, outside entities, whether it be the the NBA or USA Basketball, to make those judgments for you seems a little bit odd. And it also seems like like there there's there are chances for corruption in that too. So if you're gonna if you're gonna have a system where somebody is making the call on who, you know, who is a top prospect and who's not, uh, how is that any different from from money funneling to to those people to make those decisions and. Uh, now, I'm not saying that would happen, but but the NCAA is always worried about corruption and corrosive, what they call corrosive elements. Uh, and and here, but here's the one woge that mm-hmm. really drives me nuts. That you know, I, I'm a big believer as you are in education. I think education is great. I mean, I, I advocate for everyone to go to college, and for for people who say, you know, it really drives me nuts when people say, you know, some people don't belong in college. That drives me crazy. Uh, they may not belong at your college or a college, but they belong in college. We've got thousands of colleges in this country. Everybody belongs in school. Uh, but if we really believe that, that, that school is a, a great place for someone and we believe in education, why would we be drawing arbitrary lines as to who can come back to school if they're undrafted or even if they are drafted? We should be welcoming players back to school without, without a line being drawn. Uh, as long as they they aren't professionals or sign professional contracts, if you want to you want to go with the amateurism model, fine. But if they go into the draft and they don't get drafted, or even if they don't like their draft position, and they want to come back, let them come back. Uh, that that to me seems like a no brainer. Um, so you give the like look, I give the NCAA credit for trying, um, but they've been trying for a hundred plus years now, and they haven't been trying very hard or doing a good job with with, with their attempts. Uh, so they're, they deserve some criticism with how they tried, but they do deserve some credit for, for at least the, that they're trying to do something, uh, given that, 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 you know, they had the, uh, 
they had the push from the FBI and the Southern District of New York to actually to actually get something done. Well, the, the one thing you hit on there, Jay, with allowing players to come back to school, come back to college basketball on scholarship, if they go undrafted. Now, in other sports, I think hockey, baseball, you can get drafted and the team will keep your rights and you could go back to school. So if you were the 50th pick in the draft, you could still decide to go back. But number one, I don't think you're going to see many players who go undrafted decide to go back because you still, if you're an undrafted player, and for the most part, you're going to know you're going to be undrafted. There's very few players who, as they get deeper in the draft process, if they're not being delusional, and there is a lot of delusion in this process for a lot of people often, but you're going to know, listen, I'm probably 50 to 60 or 40 to 50 or 40 to out of the draft. But even prior to the draft, if teams suspect you might go undrafted, they're already doing contingencies with your agent. Hey, if this player goes undrafted, we're going to offer you a summer league spot, maybe a two-way contract, a 75000 or or $100,000 guarantee for next year. And for a lot of guys, that's going to be plenty good enough to say, I'm going to go do that instead of another year of college basketball because history will show you if you're going undrafted in this year's draft, you're probably going undrafted in next year's too. I mean, th- there's exceptions to that. But for the guys who might come out, their status may not change a lot. There's a whole crop of young players coming up behind you. And I guess the thinking from in talking to the people in the league office yesterday about why only combine participants versus non-combine participants was the NCAA wants those players to go through that process of getting feedback from, you know, the teams about where you're going to fall. You know, are you, do you get invited to the combine? I think the last three years, there hasn't been a player drafted who hadn't gotten an invite to the combine. So usually they do a pretty good job of anticipating who's going to get drafted. And it seems like they're fearful of that marginal player who had never had a chance to be drafted and has been told he'll have no chance to be drafted, that if they allow all of them to come back, there's going to be this roster chaos around late June, early July with the colleges. But again, to me, that makes a problem easier for a coach. I understand why a coach doesn't want that. And if a school, and I saw this argument yesterday too, well, if a school goes out and fills your scholarship while you're gone, like, hey, we're going to go sign a couple guys in the spring. We don't know if you're coming back. I guess you know that player could transfer or that's part of the risk the player takes by waiting till the end of June when he's been told, hey, listen, you are not going to get drafted. And if you want to ignore all that, then there's some peril. And is it to me, does the NSA have to be responsible for that guy who's been told for three months he's not going to get drafted and there's only a hundred of those guys and then they can all come back? I actually understand why maybe they're putting some limits on that because if they're listening to anyone, they're not going to be surprised when that happens to them at that point. They've had plenty of advance notice. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It, it's just I, I always fall on the side of, of say you have an open system, and it just, you mentioned uh, baseball and hockey, that say, say we don't put any, any restriction and say, hey, if you want to go into the draft, go into the draft. If you don't get drafted, everybody can come back. And a, a player that's going to a Power 5 school uh, that most of us would agree, hey, he probably should stay in school, but he goes through the draft process anyway and wants to come back. But but his school has already moved on from him. Well, there are a bunch of places that would like that player. So let him go. Maybe he has to go to a mid-major and play. And, and as long as he can play right away, why would we have any problem with that? Uh, it would actually be helpful 
in a lot of ways, rather than closing the door forever on a player when they're when the truth is if a player is not welcomed back to college after going through that process, the chances of that player going back to school at all in the future are, are greatly diminished. And if we really put the, if it's a student athlete centric system and we really put the, the, the student athlete first, we should say, you know what, come back to school. Like we realize you made a mistake. It was against what, what the common wisdom was, but come back to school. There's a place for you here. And we should be welcoming, and we shouldn't be worried, and we being the college basketball community, I don't think we should be too worried about the NBA. The NBA can take care of itself just fine. Uh, my thing would be, hey, if you get drafted, even if you get drafted in the first round, however unlikely it would be, maybe you don't like your draft position, maybe you don't like the team that drafted you, maybe, maybe you're, you feel like, you know what, I made a mistake, I'm not ready, come back to school. We should be welcoming of players coming back to school. Uh, if, if amateurism means so much to the NCAA, then make the bright line rule money. Uh, hey, if you sign a contract and get paid, all right, that's the, that's the, the differentiating factor. But if you want to come back, if you haven't signed that contract, then come on back. If we're going to let, uh, if we're going to let, uh, drafted baseball players and drafted hockey players come to college, why would we draw an arbitrary line at basketball? And, uh, you know, I get some of the, the logic behind it. My thing just is, you know, they're bending over backwards and doing all this mental gymnastics to say student-athlete welfare. But the truth is, and you know this, Walter, they don't really mean it. They're just saying it. And what they're really trying to protect their interests first and foremost. And most of this stuff, most of the things that are being done right now are being done so that we don't have to pay them. That's right. And I, I hate to sound like, you know, uh, Butch Cassidy here. Um, but but I feel that way, you know, saying, like, look at all the money the NCAA is paying uh, lawyers and the like so that they don't have to pay the players. <laughs> and it's uh, it's gotten to the point of absurdity now. And uh, and now that the the uh, FBI has, has gotten involved in the short run, they're not going to be involved that much longer. It's another year or so, and they're going to move on. Um, uh, the NCAA feels like, well, we have to do all these things and we have to do them now. Well, that's fine. I'm, I'm glad with the, I'm happy about the deliberate speed, but it doesn't mean it absolves the, the NCAA of the responsibility to make the, the, the best possible decision and do it the right way. And thus far, I don't think they've hit that mark. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Spotify. Did you know that every single episode of the Woj Pod is now on Spotify? Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. Just not too many. We get a little jealous very easily. To subscribe to our show, search for the Woj Pod, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now and now and now. There's two separate conversations here. I think there's one within the scope of agent representation, being able to go back to school early, those things. Okay, how can they make any of that benefit players in the best possible way and maybe cover the most players? But then there's the bigger question that they, again, refuse to address and may never address unless they're forced to, which is, you said, paying the players. And I think there's this belief that if you paid the players, it would end the corruption or the, re- the what went on in the FBI investigation that opened up some people's eyes to how this industry works. And it's a supply and demand industry. It's supply and demand. You have college coaches who need to put recruiting classes together and, and agents who need to put recruiting classes together. And 
I do believe this. If if we decided whatever the number was, let's say we're going to pay big time basketball players and football players revenue producing whatever the number is, thirty five thousand dollars a year, fifty a year, you can come up whatever number you want. What will happen then is okay, they'll get that and they deserve it, and they generate this revenue. And just like a child actor or a child musician or somebody who fills an auditorium or a movie, th- anything, that's what they're doing. And we all agree that they've earned it. But the idea it's going to end the corruption is silly because whether a school can give a guy 25 or 30, whatever the number is, Jay, you and I are recruiting the same player and I really want this guy and I'm willing to do more than the 35000 each of us can pay him. Well, here's another fifty, And the people who are offering this money and the people who are asking for this money because they've come up through an amateur system where they've been paid or they've been recruited from one travel team to another or whatever, or a sneaker company who has made it profitable to be with them, whatever it is, it's not going to change the supply and demand. It'll just be more money on top of that. So don't say we're going to pay the players. That ends the corruption. Just say we're going to pay the players because that's fair and the right thing to do. But all these other issues, they will not go away. That's true. But it really boils down to, on one hand, you know, what the, what the definition of corruption is. Because if you, if you take away, you know, sort of the, the principle of amateurism and say, look, it's an open system. Uh, players can take what they like for name and likeness. And, right. and then if schools want to pay, if they have the equivalent of a salary cap and say you can't pay more than X or Y or Z or something, they'd better come up with a good reason for, for having that sort of restriction in order to pass antitrust muster. But, uh, you know, right now, just take coaches. Like, nobody's worried about uh, what coaches are paid or what they get on the side. Um, they're not worried about, did Coach K take a free meal when he was in Las Vegas from USA Basketball? <laughs> Who paid for those right. meals? You know, they, nobody's worried about that stuff. And so it's not an issue of corruption in, right. in that in that regard. Right. And it's the wrong so, word. I think it's I think the no, it's public, but, but, no, but, but it's, it's but, but it's the right it is, word because yeah. that's the way the it's exactly the right word because that's the way the NCAA views it because it's corrupt if their rules get violated. And I do think the Southern District of New York. I happen to think that I do not think these are violations of federal law, but um, uh, you know the, the the Southern District of New York sees it differently. But but that's kind of my my issue. Like one of the things that came out yesterday were was you know the NCAA is is trying to put in or, or putting in increased penalties and sanctions on coaches and others that break the rules. As and I hear this all the time. Well, you know the incentive to cheat is greater now because the penalties aren't so great. I'm going. Wait a minute. Are you guys paying attention? Like. People are, are subject to going to jail right now for breaking NCAA rules. Do you think that a postseason ban is going to deter them when they're, when, when they're, they may be facing jail? If you look at what, what's going on with the FBI in the Southern District of New York, it was kind of like when uh, the Jerry Sandusky case was going on or saying, well, you know, uh, Penn State needs the death penalty. We need to show. Does it, did anybody really think that Jerry Sandusky or, or his ilk would be worried about a bull ban in their behavior? Right. Of course not. They're, right. they're looking at jail for the rest of the, he's looking at jail for the rest of his life, and that's the kind of thing that that drives me a little bit nuts about the way the NCAA does business. Is they're they're looking at you know thinking that hey you know we put in some increased penalties and that's really going to stop people from doing things that the money incentivizes them to do. And I don't think I don't think deterrence work that way. Um, the death penalty, you know, we had the death penalty f- from a, uh, a college sports standpoint back in the 80s. It didn't stop anybody. You know, they, they gave SMU the death penalty. Did it stop anything? It didn't. 
and it's not going to stop anything now. If it makes us feel better, great. I get it. But, but it really is, is a lot of meaningless stuff. And what, why, instead of going the route of reasonableness, like what's a reasonable punishment? What's reasonable as far as responsibility is concerned? Like, would it make all of us feel better? Because they said something the other day about uh, presidents and chancellors being responsible for violations in the same regard that coaches are. Um, I don't know if that's reasonable, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that if, if a coach cheats, that all of a sudden the president is going to be fired. You know, maybe that's the right thing. I don't think it is, unless the, unless the president knew or reasonably should have known about it. That's just that's just adding another layer of unreasonableness to to it in my judgment, and I don't think it advances the ball that far. But uh, but if it makes us feel better, great, because I know you know you know, and I know I've gotten a little bit off topic, and I apologize. But but there was one person that that was out front the last few years leading the charge for at the slightest violation, kick the coaches out forever. And that was Urban Meyer. That's right. And and my guess is he's not thinking that way right now. <laughs> no, probably not. You, the chances that the high school player will be back in the draft are significant. The commissioner wants it. Uh, the union wants it. I'm not sure all the teams want it. I don't get that sense from general managers and even some owners that there's not a tremendous appetite with all of them to go back into high school gyms and to you know, really have to expand their staffs and all the things and, and take a lot of risks on players they don't know very much about, but, but they're headed that way. This rule was in effect in the 90s. How much different do you think how, let, let's say this starts in 2022, which right now seems to be the most likely year that door opens back. How much different do you think college basketball is going to look when the NBA goes back to this rule? I think it'll look a lot different. We won't have probably 15 or 16 of the best players coming out of high school in a given year. I think the numbers will be far greater than they were back in the early 2000s when guys like LeBron were coming out, uh, coming out early. Um, so you'll have a wider, uh, a wider range of top prospects that colleges are going to feel like they have to recruit on the chance that they come to college rather than go pro. Uh, out of high school, and then I see this, Woj, and I don't know if this is going to happen, but I see this as being a potential issue. Uh, we may not have as many high school players coming in to, to college of the best players that decide to go pro out of high school, but we are going to have more Marvin Bagley's that decide they're going to reclass and come into college early, and then they're still one and done. So the changing of the one and done rule would not have affected someone like Marvin Bagley. Uh, you know, he was an older high school player that reclassed and came out of high school essentially early to come to college and still left after one year. And we're still going to have guys like Trey Young that were not considered perhaps quite good enough to come out of high school, but yet go after one year of college. So we're still going to have a ton of one and done players. We're just going to take, you know, 15 or so out of the, you know, so out of the equation that come right out of, right out of their last year of high school. And somehow the NCAA, and I, I do think college coaches are complicit in this, that, that the NCAA has been blaming all of its problems on one and done, as if that's the cause of problems, and it's not. Uh, it, it, is not it has had no causal effect in, in uh, you know, paying players or the like. Um, uh, but, but it's been a convenient target to blame, and, uh, and we're going to have the same issues going forward. But we're going to have, like, people seem to forget and I know you haven't, but a lot of people seem to forget what the landscape was like in 2005 or so 
when the uh, the one and done rule, the quote unquote one and done rule came in, where I think if you took a poll of college coaches back then, they would have said, you know, this is great having them come to college at least for a year. Uh, because we have more certainty in recruiting and all that. And then the NBA, I think, was very happy with it because they were tired of being in high school gyms and talking to, going to AAU events and all that. The only thing they really do now is, NBA scouts anyway, is they go to these postseason, uh, uh, postseason events and some USA basketball events, and that's pretty much it. Now they're going to be back in high schools talking to high school coaches, AAU coaches. Uh, it, it, it's going to, it's going to bring an aspect to it that, that, I know the the NBA would rather not be involved in, but uh, but you know right now everybody is being asked whether it's you as you know better far better than I do everybody outside of the NCAA is being asked to shoulder responsibility that really belongs to the NCAA. So the NBA is going to have to start doing more uh, to help to help the uh, NCAA and USA Basketball is going to have to do more. Heck, USA Basketball now is being put in the position in addition to winning gold medals. Uh, USA Basketball, part of their, 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 their uh, mission is to grow the game. And the NCAA is asking them to shrink the game, to limit the amount of opportunities that players have during the summer to play. Uh, and, and I can't imagine that USA Basketball feels comfortable with that or they're, they're particularly pleased about what happened yesterday. Yeah, and that's what happened yesterday. And, and we, you know, we reported on it that USA Basketball was essentially blindsided by the announcement by the league, the NBA wasn't key people there weren't aware that this announcement was coming and they had met the NBA and USA basketball and the NCAA. They've sat down, they've talked plenty, but it was made clear to the NCAA that USA basketball wanted no part in a rating system of top high school players. If whatever the, there seems to be like, there's going to be a number that the NCAA is going to put on it, whether it's going to be 10, 15, 20, 30, no one seems to know of high school players at the end of their junior year, and this is once one and done is gone, so we're talking 21 or 22, that those players will be able to hire agents. And the rating system, the NCAA says, will come from USA Basketball, who told them, we don't want to do this. We're not going to do this. We don't have the infrastructure to do it. And yet, to me, it showed you, I think, with the NCAA, like their haste in wanting to get something out and the fact that Maybe they weren't really looking for solutions here. They were looking for a PR hit with the announcement. But yeah, like you said, they're not in the business of that. And, and, you know, they've got to stay. I think USA basketball tends to want to be independent of everything. They have to serve, you know, they serve a lot of entities. They, they work with the NBA, with college, with high school. You know, they have obviously the Olympic team, but they also have 16 and under, 17 and under, 18 and under teams that are led by usually college coaches in the summer and do those things. They, they don't want to be in this business. Yeah, and USA Basketball is doing coach certification, and and uh, my camp actually has worked with USA Basketball to certify coaches that that we bring in for a coaches development program. They do a great job with it, and they do a lot of of youth development and uh, and teaching of of young people and how to how to bring up players in the game. But the fact, you know, the idea that USA Basketball may be the NBA. Uh, and, and the NCAA are going to partner for camps. I think that's fine if they want to partner for camps that are going to be competitive in the marketplace. But if they're going to be exclusionary or exclusive camps, then I think that creates a problem within the marketplace that the NCAA basically has, has, uh, has set up according to its recruiting rules and its recruiting calendar. And then there are the issues of who are going to staff these camps that, if you have people within the NBA structure, maybe they're G League coaches or younger, uh, younger aspiring NBA coaches, 
what's going to stop colleges from hiring those coaches that develop relationships with young players? And uh, it, it's basically going to be the same type of system. You know, you're not going to be able to tell a school, well, wait a minute, you can't hire ex-NBA player that's been working at these camps as an assistant that's developed relationships with these players uh, uh, that, that are recruitable athletes. It, it just creates a, it's the same system in a, in a, in different garb. And, uh, and I don't, I don't like it. I don't think it's necessary. Not all of this is bad. Uh, not, not all of this is corrupt. I, I always, and I, again, I'm going a little bit off, off the, the reservation here, but oftentimes when we're talking about NBA decisions for, for players, people talk about, well, you know, this kid's getting bad advice or a lot of people in his ear. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, bad advice, basically, the person who says that, that someone else is getting bad advice is, is usually saying, this guy's not listening to me. They're listening to somebody <laughs> right, else. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, look, these, these players, nobody's worried about the advice they're getting to go to college. They're worried about the advice they're getting uh, that would steer them away from college. And, uh, and I just don't think there's, that's something that we can regulate. I think you have to offer a, uh, the, the best, you know, offer the, the best information that you can to a player about what college can do for them, and then say, hey, listen, and if you decide to go into the pro sphere and you don't stay there and you don't sign a contract, you know, you go and you find out there are some brick walls or closed doors, then you are welcome back into college. We want you to go to school. We want you to play. Uh, and, and we'd like you to come back. I think that's the way it should be instead of, instead of us putting up barriers to players, uh, that, that are mostly artificial and are mostly saying, well, wait a minute, you know, if you turn your back on us, uh, we don't want you again. I, I'm not a big fan of that. I think we should be more inclusive and, and welcoming of players and let the NBA figure it out. If they draft somebody in the second round, late in the second round, and that player decides, hey, you know what? I don't think I want to go there. So I'm going to go back to school. Well, that's the NBA's problem. That shouldn't be college's problem. Support for the Woj Pod comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans create their exclusive power buying process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then, once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that lower new rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash woge. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. People are so anti the NCA is this broad entity and, and for lots of good reasons you sometimes hear this thing of oh good for that guy because he's leaving school and he's going to get paid or good for this guy because he's not going and he's not going to be part of that structure and, and I get that except for what their reality is going to be and for most players for most players the reality is going to be a lot of time in the G League almost no matter where you get drafted 
a lot of first round picks are going to spend a lot of time in the G League. And now you might be on an NBA contract and, and that makes it worth it. I totally get it. But you know, a guy who's on a two way contract can make two way contract means you can spend 45 days up to 45 days in the NBA. And so you could make up to $200,000 in a season, which is, you know, much more than you could make in the G League. Like I think a two way contract, I think it's like you're going to make 45 or 50,000 and you can make up to 200,000. And that might be better than college basketball for some guys, but the guys who are just on G League deals making twenty, twenty-five thousand, and <laughs> traveling, getting up at six a.m. and flying southwest, connecting through Midway to get to, you know, to go play the Memphis Hustle, and then on to the next one, it's not real glamorous, and it's nowhere near playing in the Big East, ACC, Big Ten, where you're chartering and the facilities are great, and you're playing in front of big crowds on TV. You know, the rush to get to the pros for, for the elite player, of course, go. But for that marginal player, and I think too, I think in some cases, you're better off in development with certain college programs. In some cases, I think the development with a team that does their G League right might be better than some colleges where I think it's a case by case. But there is almost, and I think you see this too, Jay, the longer you stay in school, if you don't leave right away, there's almost like this cred you lose. That what, what do you mean? You're not good enough to go yet. And whereas when most guys really look at what the reality of pro life is, it's really not that appealing, especially in your first couple of years. Exactly. That hits the nail on the head. And so from an NCAA perspective, uh, you know, my thing is, and I realize there are a number of players out there and a high percentage of them that, that are looking at their pro, pro futures as sort of pipe dreams. Um, they don't see it that way, but but the rest of us are looking at their chances, saying it's a little bit of a pipe dream for you to to expect this in in your future. But my thing would be, you know what, dream big, but but you can do both. You can get your education and have and still have those dreams. Because I know one thing: all these NCAA colleges and institutions are not are not talking to their regular students about, you know what, you know what, you need to aim lower. The people are saying, well, I'd like to go to Silicon Valley and I'd like to, to get it, it to, to have a tech startup. They're not saying, you know what, 90% of those things fail. Uh, don't, don't, don't even think about doing that. Uh, no, they're not doing that. And they're not telling their, their scholarship musicians or their scholarship uh, uh, acting students. They're not telling them, you know how few people make it in Hollywood. A lot of people are busting tables. They never make it. They're not telling them that. Um, what they what they need to do is sell them on on pursuing their dreams athletically and getting their education and having you know having that in their back pocket uh, because you know it, I did it a number of almost everybody I played with did it uh, you can go to school pursue your athletics and get your degree and if you leave early uh, you should be welcomed back to finish your degree and I think most schools are doing that most schools are welcoming them back. But uh, uh, we have to confront the reality uh, that these kids are facing rather than this old-school idea that we have about, well, this kid's making a mistake. And, mm-hmm. and I've heard a lot about, uh, uh, you know what, you need to take responsibility. If you make a mistake, that's on you. If you leave early, uh, you know, that's on you. Um, I, I don't necessarily think we need to, we need to do that. Uh, I'm more of, hey, look, if you, if you change your mind, if you don't think you made the right decision, Come on back, right. not just telling, well, you're an elite player, so you can go and make a bad decision, 
but but if you're just outside of that elite player status, you're not allowed to make that decision. That's gonna that's gonna negatively affect your life because we're not gonna let you come back. I don't think that's a position the NCAA should be in. I think a big part of why the league wants to open the doors back up to high school players is there was a time where they wanted to go the other direction. It was the high school player could come out, but then you know players got to stay two years in college. It's similar to that baseball rule, and that's kind of gone out the window here in. I think the negotiations, I think the league has moved off that. Uh, I don't think the union would have gone for that. But I think the motivation with the NBA isn't about, well, we're going to do the right thing. This is the right thing to allow young people to pursue their dreams at 18 or coming out of high school. A lot of owners are putting a lot of money into these G League franchises, and they'd like to see a return on this money. And I think they would like to see TV deals that might pay them a little bit. And so this really, on the end, this is not a benevolent move by Adam Silver in the league, I think a big part of it is dictated by getting star players into the G League and selling tickets in those places, being able to market those teams, because that's where most of these guys, uh, whether they believe it or not or really pay attention, that's where a lot of these guys are headed, especially at 18 years old coming out of high school. Very few guys. Kobe Bryant, Kobe was unique, but Kevin Garnett, I mean, he averaged five points a game his rookie year. Kobe, those guys... Even when you go back there, it took guys a long time to be able to make an impact, and they're going to be in the G League, and I think that that's the motivation of the NBA here. And it'll be interesting to see once those doors open and, and maybe some guys initially flood through and see that reality if some of them don't say, you know what, maybe one-year college still is better for me than going to do that for a year. Yeah, and that's where I think reclassification is going to be uh, increasingly a bigger deal, and we'll see what the NCAA decides to do with that. But you know, to my point on a guy, a guy like Marvin Bagley, and there are a bunch of guys that are doing this now. Uh, you know, it used to be that that parents would hold their their kids back a little bit so that they'd be older players in high school and therefore, you know, more uh, physically and emotionally prepared for what they're going to deal with. And they might go into college at age nineteen. You know, I started college just barely 18, 18 years old, but now guys are nineteen. And you know, people were talking about last year Marvin Bagley. Well, he really should be a high school senior. He's nineteen years old. <laughs> I mean, he was well. He was way older than Jaron Jackson was uh, from Michigan State that got uh, got taken in the top five in the draft, and uh, so he wasn't he wasn't behind in any way. Uh, he was he was uh, you know he was held back in order to to be that old when he was supposed to be in high school. So we're going to see more of that, and and so we're still going to have only you know we're still going to have a bunch of guys leaving after just one year so the the dynamic in college i don't believe will change all that much and as you mentioned it's not going to change before 2021 or 2022 anyway but even once we get there uh people will have figured out more effectively how to manage their high school years so that they can graduate early get into college and then take advantage of instead of you know playing high school basketball before they go pro They'll be able to uh, to train, get better nutrition, better better facilities, and all that in college, and then go after one year. And and you know the bottom line, Woj, is all these things that the NCAA is doing right now do not address in any way Brian Bowen getting a hundred thousand dollars or or things like that. Uh, didn't address that in any way. And w- they're changing the recruiting calendar in in July. Did not address that in mm-hmm. any way. Um, we're still going to have those same issues. Uh, you know, we're just kind of spinning our wheels in a way here and making it look like we're doing something meaningful, but we're really not. And, uh, and you know, the Rice Commission came out and said, 
uh, Condoleezza Rice says, we need to put the college back in college basketball. And I was like, what does that mean? Uh, because, <laughs> right. you know, if, if a player is going to Duke or St. Bonaventure where we went to school uh, and they're not going to class, whose fault is that? That's Duke and St. Bonaventure's fault. If the kid's not going to class, whether he's a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior, they can remedy that right away. If they're not going to class, take their uniform away or kick them out of school. You know, that's on them. No NCAA rule is going to fix that. Uh, so I've never, I've never bought that idea that, hey, you know, one and done players don't even have to go to school their second semester. Yes, they do. Right. And there, there, there are rules in place that require that. If they don't do it, that's on the university. And, uh, and it's not on, it's not on the system itself. So we got a lot to figure out in college, college basketball. But, uh, uh, though, though I'm sure the coaches that are trying to keep their heads down and, and not talk about this are football coaches because the idea that the same, the, these same issues aren't prevalent in football is kind of laughable because they are. Absolutely. Hey, Jay, this, this was awesome. I appreciate you, uh, taking the time. I know we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. Woj, anytime, my friend. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, ESPN's Jay Billis. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of this podcast wherever you get your pods. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your shows. And, of course, a big thank you to our sponsor today, Spotify. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Woj Pod. We'll catch you next time. Guys, let's hear from our sponsor, Spotify, one more time. Some things were meant for each other, fries and milkshakes, selfies and duck face, and now the Woj Pod and Spotify. Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to ours, search for the Woj Pod, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered right to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now and now and now. 